If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 459. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Speaking of books, I have a new book out, The Jeffersonian Tradition. You can get it at Amazon right now, eventually be at other booksellers, but Amazon's got it. So go on to Amazon.com, look for The Jeffersonian Tradition. It's an awesome book, over 50 essays in defense of that Jeffersonian tradition. If you're on my email list, you already knew about this, and by giving me that email for those free books, you get that email list. And I don't send you a lot of emails, usually once a day for Monday through Friday, something like that. It's not excessive. Of course, you can also support the show by clicking on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. It's a great way to support the show. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate. You can buy some Brian McClanahan Show-themed gifts at brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that shop tab. Another great way to support the show. But great way to support the show is just simply rating this podcast, letting people know you listen to it, letting people know you think locally, act locally. That's how we turn this thing around. And in fact, some of your show requests also. And in fact, this whole week is dedicated to the problem of nationalism. Now, what do I mean by that? There are a lot of people out there that really like nationalism. And of course, Donald Trump took office in 2017 promising to be a nationalist. And this term took on this new meaning, right? Nationalism was bad. The left didn't like it. When in reality, what we've seen throughout the last half century is the resurgence of American nationalism and debate over what that means for the direction of the United States. You see, what we're going to talk about this week, and the first piece I'm going to kick it off with, gets into what he considers to be four cultures in America. And I'm going to talk about the historical basis of that and how I don't think he even knew what he was doing when he did it. But regardless, the problem for America is one-size-fits-all top-down government. It is the real problem for America. It always has been the problem for America. And it's the problem for America because when you have that system, which of course Lincoln foisted on the United States, before that point we had these United States, a federal republic, that died during the war between in the 1860s. Now we have a national government and whoever controls the national levers of power gets tremendous spoils out of it. And in our current system, when we have razor-thin political majorities, and there's a piece I'm going to talk about later in this week. First, plus, by the way, let me just say this. This podcast today is going to go really long. The rest of them in the rest of the week, because of time and what time I have to record, are going to be a little shorter, about 20 minutes. So I've been hitting 30 minutes on each podcast. This podcast is going to be a long podcast, so then I shortened up the other three. But this article is so important, I wanted to cover it. Because I think it does do a nice job of explaining some things. But in reality, we've got razor-thin majorities, right? I mean, even if you say Joe Biden won a crushing majority in the popular vote, he won by about a million votes, a little over that, something like that. I can't remember what the actual number was now. But that was essentially carried by California. So essentially, California is running the United States. And we know that the vice president is from California, Speaker of the House is from California. Do we want to be governed by California is the question that everyone has to ask on the left and the right. Maybe if you're on the left, you love to be governed by California. If you're on the right, you hate it. But this is nationalism. This is what it does. It creates a climate where we have one-size-fits-all top-down government. And when you have this political culture in America that isn't nationalist in reality, and I think this piece by George Parker, I'm sorry, George Packer, not George Parker, George Packer gets into that. I don't know why I said Parker. George Packer gets into that. Excuse the uh, 
mistake there. Now, George Packer is a 1970s, 80s liberal, and he's very much in favor of some of the things that are going on on the left, but he thinks, reading what he's written about a lot of things, he does see that the modern left, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the squad, the Elizabeth Warren, that kind of left, and particularly the social justice left, has gone a bit too far. And he's sympathetic with what they're doing, but he thinks that their tactics are wrong. He doesn't care for conservatives. He thinks libertarians are immature. And that the snarky stuff just drips from his pen as he writes this piece, or from the fingertips on his keyboard. And, you know, frankly, I think he's wrong. He, he's, he tries to come off as this really bright individual who knows all this stuff, but anybody that knows anything can see through it. He's not that smart. But what he does do a pretty good job of in this piece is articulating that there are we don't have a unified America. And I would say in American history, there's only really been one period of time, and he he identifies it without really realizing it. There's been one period of time in American history when you had real homogenous American identity. And that was from about 1941 until about 1963. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't things under the surface, but in that little, about a two-decade period of time, 20 years, you had very few immigrants into the United States. The Great Depression was a big contributor to that. Nobody could get a job. And so the Democrats in particular, who were controlling the United States government, didn't want large numbers of immigrants in the country because, of course, that would drive down wages and make it even harder for the Americans who were here who couldn't get a job to get a job again. So that was certainly an economic motivation. There were no jobs to be had, at least not for laboring people, which generally immigrants come into the country, they're low-skilled Laborers. That's how. That's what's happened recently. Now, if you look back to in the 18th century, when Americans talked about immigration, they talked about mechanics and skilled workers and people that they needed to fill out some of these jobs. But what's happened since the late 19th century is that you've gotten every poor person in America who wants a better way of life, and you can understand that. They've flooded into the United States from all over the world, whether it's Europe or South America or Central America. And they're looking for opportunity. And the United States offers that. And you can understand that, right? People want to do better for themselves. And there's a place out there that you could go that you could potentially do that for whatever reason. Nowadays, it might be a handout. Or it could just be the prospect of a job that's going to pay well, that you can live for yourself and send some money back to your family, whatever you want to do. You can understand the situation. But this has become a these people, of course, have become political pawns, and they've been political pawns for a long period of time. Regardless, Packer does identify these four cultures that have that currently make up America, and this has been the case since the 17th century, when the first Englishmen arrived in North America. And if you go back, and I talk about this book all the time in my classes at McClanahan Academy, which you got an advertisement for at the beginning of this podcast, but get on that train, right? You want to be on the McClanahan Academy train. I talk about this book a lot. It's Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher, and he identifies four British folkways that define America, even to this day. And I think what Packer is doing here, and again, he doesn't even realize he's doing it, he's correctly identifying these four British folkways, which are still there. Now, it's not as easily identifiable in this piece, but I'm going to try to relate these things back to different groups. And there is some bleeding into others, right? I mean, these aren't clearly defined in the 21st century like they were in the 17th. We don't have, for example, the Cavaliers as a defined group or the Borderlands people, the Celtic peoples as a defined group or the Quakers or the Puritans. Those are the four groups. But you can certainly see within these groups certain things that are similar, and how they identify. And what you're also going to see is there's still a north-south split. Now, some of that's also urban-rural now. 
So it's not necessarily just north-south. And again, there's some bleeding into different sections here. And there's, there's people that identify with these groups all over the United States. There could be some in New England that are not, you know, that are more a southern in their worldview and some in the south are more Yankee in their worldview. That can certainly happen. And as we've had this transient society, that certainly does happen. But I wanted to cover this piece, and this podcast is going to be near an hour long. So just to let you know, it's going to run a while. So buckle up for this. This is going to be a long piece. Okay. And I'm going to relate back to some things he says. And there's a whole lot of stupidity in this piece, too. That I will let you know that. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll point that, that out when we get there. But the title of the piece is How America Fractured into Four Parts. So from the beginning, the title is incorrect. It's not how America fractured into four parts. It's how America remained fractured into four parts or how it's always been fractured into four parts. Again, if, Par- if Packer was familiar with Fisher's Albion Seed, the title would be completely different. He would already understand that America never had a national identity. And I know you go back to the founding period, and I'm going to talk about this later this week with one of the pieces in my originalist papers, which is a great class. I'm on part three. I'm working on that. It'll be out at the end of this month, within two weeks. Part one and two are already out. But you go back to that and... You look at how America was even discussed in 1787 and 1788. They all recognized that America was not a national uh, people. There was no one people. And in fact, Governor Morris pointed this out in the Philadelphia Convention. Look, if we have all these differences, as people say we have, then we don't need to be together. But if we don't, let's try to form a national government. But he did make a distinction between a national government and a confederal government. And what we were getting in 1788 was a confederal government. I don't think Packer even rec- realizes that. He wrote a piece about American civics and how we should start teaching American civics. But again, that's a minefield because who's going to teach it? And he actually brings up 1619 and 1776 and how we've got these. But I say, again, they're two sides of the same coin. They both want the same thing. It's a one-size-fits-all view of America. So I would agree with Packer on some things. And, and frankly, I mean he would be an interesting person to have a conversation with. I think that he could be better versed in some areas of history, but that's asking maybe too much. So let's start with this. People in the United States no longer agree on the nation's purpose, values, history, or meaning. Is reconciliation possible? Now, I would say from the 1600s forward, people in America didn't agree on the nation's purpose, values, history, and meaning because we really didn't have a nation. We had four cultures, nations within a centralized framework when we started getting the U.S. government. But there's a reason why the Declaration called the states states, not counties, shires, provinces, but states essential for understanding how we think about the United States. We had 13 distinct states that were unifying together to fight the British And then, of course, at that point, when that was all said and done, they created a central government for specific purposes only, and the states were to handle everything else. You see, if we still had this model, and we were still following this model, all of this stuff he's getting into wouldn't matter, except for the political Puritans. And he talks about them. Now, what he's going to get into here are four distinct cultures in America. And I say that, four distinct cultures in America. He calls them Free America, Real America, Smart America, and Justice America, or Just America. These are the four cultures. Now, when we get to each one, I'll talk about where they fit in Albion Seed's uh, description of these four particular liberty ways, and not just that, cultural ways as we move forward. But he continues, nations, I would say, is reconciliation possible? I think no. I think we're at the point where reconciliation is not possible, and it should not be possible, except for a constitution that is there to do the original purpose of the document. And that is to defend the United States against foreign attacks and invasion, and to regulate international commerce. If we had a constitution that did these things only, all of this conflict would be solved. Near, I mean, nearly overnight. Because if people actually, and it's a very hard thing to do, you drop this love affair with what he calls patriotism or nationalism, you drop it and you start saying, let California be California and let Alabama be Alabama and let Massachusetts be Massachusetts. And you know what happens? You start to see a turn in people. They start to say, well, you know, I guess it really doesn't matter if California has a 
a gun control law because, you know what, I don't live there. And I guess it really doesn't matter what happens in Alabama, what they do with their COVID requirements, because you know what, I don't live there. Same thing with Florida or Massachusetts. I guess it really doesn't matter if they teach uh, you know, critical race theory in Massachusetts schools because I don't live there. Now, if you live in those states, then it matters. And of course, it really matters. And this is where I would say that people are still represented. We get in a piece later about democracy. People still are represented. You're represented better at your state and local level than you are at any other level. And you still have real government. This is where I would say, you know, people like uh, some of the pieces where I talk about later in the week where they say, well, you're not represented. Yes, you are. You're certainly represented. I saw a... Um, an advertisement with, um, I think it was Represent Us, and it was Jennifer Lawrence. She was saying, you know, uh, we, we need to worry about democracy. Our democracy is in peril. No, it's not. People go out and vote all the time. And we've seen how important state and local government is during COVID. It's the most important thing. That we, it, it's been beautiful in that way. People are finally waking up to this. So let me get back into this piece. Nations like individuals tell stories in order to understand what they are, where they come from, and what they want to be. National narratives, like personal ones, are prone to sentimentality, grievance, pride, shame, self-blindness. There's never just one. They compete and constantly change. Now, I would agree with this. I think there's, I mean, you could say that there's these myths. Myth is a loaded term because it doesn't mean it's untrue. It just means this is a story of a people. Southerners have theirs. New Englanders have theirs. There is a Lincolnian nationalist myth, and he subscribes to it, that we're all one people, we all come from the same place, and this is it. Uh, we come from the America is built on an idea myth, and it's wrong. He says the most durable narratives are not the ones that stand up best to fact-checking. I agree, the Lincolnian myth falls apart every which way you look at it. They're the ones that address our deepest needs and desires. Americans know by now that democracy depends on a baseline of shared reality. When facts become fungible, we're lost. But are there really any facts in any of these things? I mean, there's interpretation. There's interpretation of our past. Different people interpret it different ways. In fact, what we're seeing, and I saw this uh, with the Lee statue in Virginia. There was a, a uh, black activist in Virginia. His last name was Mitchell. And he ran a newspaper, and he was involved in streetcar boycotts and other things during the uh, New South period. And he wrote when the Lee statue went up, it's coming down now. Uh, that he was very, I mean, eventually it would come down. Black people put it up and black people will take it down. And what we've, what we've got in the 1619 Project is pushing this. We've allowed for that narrative of history, the Frederick Douglass, uh, Mitchell narrative, to be more important than the Lee narrative of history. No, neither, both of them are valid histories. I mean, this is the way that black Americans saw the United States, at least at that time. And this is the way Southerners saw the United States. That both of them are valid histories. One should not trump the other, so to speak, if we're going to be honest about things. One's not more correct than the other if we just want to say that we're going to look at all viewpoints. Now, we could argue which one is more correct. Uh, but, in fact, we shouldn't take down one to put the other one up, is the point. There can be no reconciliation in that. And I don't think the just left wants reconciliation, and Packer actually points that out. Americans know, okay, I got to that. Uh, but just no one, as no one can live a happy and productive life in nonstop self-criticism, nations require more than facts. They need stories that convey a moral identity. The long gaze in the mirror has to end in self-respect or it will swallow us up. I don't know if it has to convey a moral identity. There's no moral identity in some of these things. We have to understand. And I think that's what people are trying to do more than anything else, to understand. Tracing the evolution of these narratives can tell you something about a nation's possibilities for change. Through much of the 20th century, the two political parties had clear identities and told distinct stories. The Republicans spoke for those who wanted to get ahead, and the Democrats spoke for those who wanted a fair shake. See, here is, here is dichotomy is just lost. Basically saying Republicans are selfish and Democrats just want to have everybody be okay. But Democrats are wanting to get ahead through the government. They wanted people to get ahead through the government and take from those to give... I mean, this is, the, this is what's happening. Now, Republicans were in love with government, too, for their own reasons. So, again, we had two national parties interested in national ends 
which is why we've got these razor-thin majorities and everybody's angry all the time. I talked about this five years ago in a podcast I did called uh, titled Why Americans Are Angry. It's one of those older podcasts. And you go back and get all my old catalog of stuff. I've got good stuff out there. Republicans emphasize individual enterprise and Democrats emphasize social solidarity, eventually including black people and abandoning the party's commitment to Jim Crow. But unlike today, the two parties were arguing over the same recognizable country. This arrangement held until the late 1960s, still within living memory. The two parties reflected a society that was less free than today, less tolerant, and far less diverse, with fewer choices, but with more economic equality, more shared prosperity, and more political cooperation. Liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats played important roles in their respective parties. Americans then were more uniform than we are in what they ate, tuna noodle casserole, and what they watched, bullet. Even their bodies looked more alike. They were more restrained than we are, more repressed. The restraint and repression were coming undone by 1968. What is restrained and repressed? Maybe they had a more Christian sensibility about them, and uh, they were at least cognizant of uh, social norms than we are now. I mean, that's one thing. Since then, the two parties have just about traded places. I've argued in this show again that they really haven't. The Republicans have always been the Republicans. The Democrats are the ones who have abandoned any of their traditional roots. By the turn of the millennium, the Democrats were becoming the home of affluent professionals, while the Republicans were starting to sound like populist insurgents. We have to understand this exchange in order to grasp how we got where we are. The 1970s ended post-war bipartisan middle-class America, with it the two relatively stable narratives of getting ahead and the fair shake. In their place, four rival narratives have emerged, four accounts of America's moral identity. They have roots in history, but they are shaped by new ways of thinking and living. They reflect schisms on both sides of the divide that has made us two countries, extending and deepening the lines of fracture. Over the past four decades, the four narratives have taken turns exercising influence. They overlap, morph into one another, attract and repel one another. None can be understood apart from the others because all four emerge from the same whole. So, again saying these all come from the same whole. I disagree. They come from four distinct cultures. So we're going to start with the first called Free America. Okay. Now, I would say this particular culture that he's describing in large part comes from the uh, borderlands idea of liberty. Leave me alone. Now, there's certainly a bleed in some of the Old South and other things. He brings it up. There is some of the cavalier bleed into this, because Southern culture was influenced by both. But I would say that Cavalier culture, in many ways, is more traditional and more real America. Okay? But he does bring up some of these other, some of the traits of the Cavalier culture within this stuff. So I think, again, he's not, he doesn't understand what he's doing exactly, but he gets around there. Call the first narrative Free America. In the past half century, it's been the most politically powerful of the four. Free Americans, America draws on libertarian ideas, which it installs in the high-powered engine of consumer capitalism. The freedom it champions is very different from Alexis de Tocqueville's art of self-government. It's personal freedom without other people. The negative liberty of don't tread on me. So again, this is the borderlands leave me alone idea. Um... And I think that that's important to understand. This is where it comes from. The conservative movement began to dominate the Republican Party in the 1970s and then much of the country after 1980 with the presidency of Ronald Reagan. As historian George H. Nash observed, and this is the uh, conservative intellectual movement uh, since World War II, essentially, is the book that he's bringing up here. It's uneasily, uneasily, I'm sorry, wove together several strands of thought. One was traditionalist, a reaction against the utopian plans and moral chaos of modern secular civilization. That would be more like the Cavalier society, okay? Um, the Orthodox Southern society. Now, that group also is part of real America. So these groups, these, I mean, this, again, it's not clear with Albion C, but there are some, some things you can see here that kind of work together. The, uh, the traditionalists were sin-fearing Protestants, Orthodox Catholics, Southern agrarians, would-be aristocrats, alienated individualists, dissident dissidents in post-war America. They were appalled by the complacent vulgarity of these semi-educated masses. Their hero was Edmund Burke, the avatar of conservative restraint, and their enemy was John Dewey, the philosopher of American democracy. 
The traditionalist elitism put them at odds with the main currents of American life. The one passage of American history that most appealed to them was the quasi-feudal Old South. Again, the South wasn't feudal. wasn't even quasi-feudal. If you read Eugene Genovese, you see that. But their writings inspired the next generation of conservatives like William Buckley. Maybe. I mean, was Buckley, <laughs> was Buckley that, that much interested in Southern conservatism? I mean, he gave lip service to it, and he liked some of it, but... He was certainly uh, someone who was not, necess- not necessarily an ally of, at all times of Southern conservatism. Adjacent to the traditionalists were the anti-communists. Many of them were former Marxists, like Whitaker Chambers and James Burnham. Politics for them was nothing less than the titanic struggle between good and evil, God and man. The main target of their enemy was the creed of Eleanor Roosevelt and Arthur Schlesinger Jr., good old liberalism, which they believed to be a part of communism, the ideology of Western suicide, Burnham called it. The anti-communists, like the traditionalists, were skeptics of democracy. Its softness would doom its destruction when World War II broke out. If these hectoring pessimists were the sum of modern conservatism, the movement would have died of joylessness by 1960. So if it's these people, then it's never going to make it because, I mean, they were just hectoring pessimists. But then you add the libertarians, he said. They slipped more easily into the American stream. In their insistence on freedom, they could claim to be descendants of Locke, Jefferson, the classical liberal tradition. Some of them interpreted the Constitution as a libertarian document for individual and states' rights under a limited federal government, not as a framework for the strengthened nation that the authors of the Federalist Papers thought they were creating. See, this is where George Packer doesn't even know what he's talking about because the authors of the Federalist Papers, there's three of them, Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, and basically Hamilton and Madison, didn't think they were creating a nation. They were creating a federal republic, and they said it over and over again. And Madison, in particular, talked a lot about the importance of states' rights, or the states, they didn't call it that, but states. And if you look at the complete picture of the ratification period, you find that argument over and over and over again. So Packer is confused here. He doesn't really understand history. Oddly, the most influential libertarians were Europeans, especially the Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek, whose polemic against collectivism, The Road to Serfdom, was a publishing sensation in America in 1944 during the most dramatic mobilization of economic resources by state power in history. Well, I think Americans recognize a lot of that was wrong. A lot of it was unbalanced. A lot of it was unconstitutional. But again, this is where a Packer has problems. I don't know if Hayek was the most important libertarian. There's others, certainly others. Uh, But that book, The Road to Serfdom, was very popular. What distinguished libertarians from conventional pro-business Republicans was their pure and uncompromising idea. What was it? Hayek, planning Lisa dictatorship. The purpose of government is to secure individual rights and little else. One sip of social welfare and free government dies. A 1937 Supreme Court decision upholding parts of the New Deal was the beginning of America's decline and fall. Libertarians were in rebellion against the mid-century mixed economic consensus. In spirit, they were more radical than conservative. No compromise of Social Security administrators and central bankers. Death to Keynesian fiscal policy. Despite or because of their purity of their idea, libertarians made common calls with segregationists and racism informed their political movement from the beginning. That's not true. I mean, this is just a complete libelous slap, and it's stupid. Their first hero, Senator Barry Goldwater, ran for president in 1964 as an insurgent against his own party's establishment while opposing the Civil Rights Bill on states' rights grounds. Well, I mean, look, the Civil Rights Bill did have problems in 1964. In particular, you can't really find any congressional authorization to do these things. And so Goldwater was correct. In fact, Goldwater was a champion of civil rights within his own state of Arizona, but he said that has to happen there. You can't do it outside of that. This is why Sam Urban in North Carolina could be the left darling when he was opposing Nixon, but yet was excoriated by the left when he was opposing civil rights bills. To him, it was the same, and he was right. Too much centralization and unconstitutional federal power. That was the point in all of it. Take your pick of the idea. This is what's happening. And I mean, I could say this about things like, um, you know, leftist issues. Uh, too much central, I mean, even, even gun control. California should be able to have their own, if it doesn't violate the California Constitution, they should be able to do what they want there. 
Uh, same thing with, uh, you know, um, all kinds of issues. Drug legalization, for example, that's a state issue. And on the right, there's other issues that fit with that too, that the left should stay out of. The first two strands of the conservative movement, elitist traditionalism and anti-communism, remained part of its DNA for half a century. Eventually, the American people made their preference for taking pleasures where they wanted clear, and the first faded. While in the end of the cold, while the end of the Cold War rendered the second obsolete, but libertarianism stretches all the way to the present. James Burn, Burnham is mostly forgotten, but I've met Ayn Rand fanatics everywhere, because of course Ayn Rand is the is libertarianism, right? I mean. Because, you know, Paul Ryan read Atlas Shrugged in high school. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> I mean, would we say this if, uh, if some lefty read Mein Kampf in high school? Well, well, you know, he read Mein Kampf in high school. Or they read the Communist Manifesto. Or they read the Communist Manifesto in high school. So that means that they're, this is going to determine who they are. Libertarianism speaks to the American myth of the self-made man and the lonely pioneer on the plains. The American myth. Glorification of men is a recurring feature. Like Marxism, it is a complete explanatory system. It appeals to super smart engineers and others who never really grow up. So this is it. He says libertarians never really grow up. It's super super smart engineers and a bunch of adolescent dippies running around out there who don't who haven't matured enough to understand they're wrong. How did free America become the dogma of the Republican Party? Like any great political change, this one depended on ideas, an authentic connection with people's lives and timing. Just as there would have been no Roosevelt Revolution without the Great Depression, there would have been no Reagan Revolution without the 1970s. After years of high inflation with high unemployment, gas shortages, chaos in liberal cities, and epic government corruption and incompetence, by 1980 a large audience of Americans was ready to listen to what when Milton and Rose Friedman in a book called Ten Part Public Television and I'm sorry, Ten Part Public Television series called Free to Choose. Blame the country's decline on business regulations and other government interventions in the market. But it took the alchemy of that year's Republican nominee to transform the cold formula of tax cuts and deregulation into the warm vision of America as a shining city on a hill. Now, this is interesting because he's bringing up a very puritanical look of America. Reagan was channeling the Puritans. He says here the Pilgrims, which is completely wrong. This is the Puritans, not the Pilgrims, but the Puritans. And Reagan's rhetoric, leverage buyout somehow rhymed with the spirit of New England town meetings. Again, New England. It's running the United States for New England. We're doing this in two different ways. We're doing it with the left and we're doing it with the right. Reagan made free America sound like the promised land, a place where all were welcome to pursue happiness. The descendants of Jefferson's yeoman farmers with their desire for independence became sturdy car company executives and investment bankers yearning to breathe free of big government. In 1980, the first year I cast a vote, I feared and hated Reagan. Listening to his words 40 years later, I can hear their eloquence and understand their appeal, as long as I tune out many other things. Chief among them is Reagan's half-spoken message to white Americans. Government helps only those people. Legal segregation was barely dead when free America, using the libertarian language of individuals and property rights, pushed the country into its long decline in public investment. The advantages for businesses were easy to see. As for ordinary people, the Republican Party reckoned that some white Americans would rather go without than share the full benefits of prosperity with their newly equal black compatriots. I mean, this is just ridiculously stupid. He's making an assumption here that you can't prove, and an assertion here you can't prove. The majority of Americans who elected Reagan weren't president weren't told that free America would break unions and starve social programs or that it would change antitrust policy to bring a new age of monopoly, making Walmart, Citigroup, Google and Amazon, the J.P. Morgan and Standard Oil of the second Gilded Age. So, I mean, was that all because of the of the Republicans? No. The shining city on a hill was supposed to replace remote big government with a community of energetic and compassionate citizens all engaged in a project of national renewal. See, this is the problem. Again, here it is, nationalism. I mentioned this before. Think locally, act locally is a solution, but not when you're trying to channel this into um, make America whatever it is or um, uh, the, the um, slogans that often are, are attached to these local political movements. It's all about the United States. Make it about your state and your local government. And I'll tell you something, if you do that, you're going to change a lot of things. You see, 
Packer is writing from a nationalist perspective, and this is the problem. But nothing held the city together. It was a hollow at the center, a collection of individuals, all wanting more. It saw Americans as entrepreneurs, employees, investors, taxpayers, and consumers, everything but citizens. Now, here's another stupid statement. In the Declaration of Independence, freedom comes right after equality. No, it doesn't. In fact, freedom comes before that. Now, to explain why. Now, he's talking about the line in the second paragraph that says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what he doesn't say is that in the first sentence, which is the first paragraph, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, in other words, when it becomes time for us to break away from you and gain our freedom and liberty. Freedom is in the first sentence. It's also in the last paragraph. It's in that second paragraph. It was the most important thing to the founding generation, independence, to govern themselves. Equality was a throwaway line. It was downplayed and everywhere that it was brought out. Now, there are people that don't agree with me on this, but if you get Chronicles Magazine, I show how this is the case. It meant... For Reagan and the narrative of free America, it meant freedom from government and bureaucrats. It meant the freedom to run a business without regulation, to pay workers whatever wage the market would bear, to break a union, to pass all your wealth on to your children. <gasps> oh my God, to pass all your wealth on to your children. How radical. To buy out an ailing company with debt and strip it for assets, to own seven houses, or to go homeless. But a freedom that gets rid of all obstructions is impoverished and it degrades people. Real freedom is closer to the opposite of breaking loose. It means growing up and acquiring the ability to participate fully in political and economic life. Now, here's the thing. What he's defining here is a, another side of the coin of the city upon a hill. He's defining Puritan liberty, the liberty of the community over individual liberty. This is what he's defining. This is important to understand about this kind of stuff. You have to understand that these different views of liberty, and I've done a podcast on that too. Just go out and look for it. The different views of liberty are so important for understanding American life. You have this Puritan view of liberty. Community comes first, individual second. You've got to grow up. The obstructions that block this ability are the ones that need to be removed. Some are external, institutions and social conditions. Others are embedded in your character and get in the way of governing yourself, thinking for yourself, and even knowing what is true. These obstructions cause the individual, individuality I'm sorry, that freedom lovers cherish making them conformist, submissive, a group of people all shouting the same thing, easy marks for a demagogue. Reagan cared more about the functions of self-government than his most ideological supporters. He knew how to persuade and when to compromise, but once he was gone and the Soviet Union not long after him, free America lost the narrative Fred. Without Reagan's smile and the Cold War's clarity, its vision grew darker and more extreme. Its spirit became flesh in the person of Newt Gingrich, the most influential politician of the past half century. There was nothing conservative about Gingrich. Well, I agree with this here. I and mean, Gingrich is not conservative, but not because why he says he's not conservative. He came to Congress not to work with in the institution or even to change it, but to tear it down in order to seize power. When the Gingrich Revolution, the term with the Gingrich Revolution, I'm sorry, the term government shutdown entered the lexicon and politics became a forever war. His tactics turned the goal of limited and efficient government into the destruction of government. Without a positive vision, his party used power to hold on to power and fatten corporate allies. Corruption, financial, political, intellectual, moral, set in like dry rot and a decaying log. He says, free America always had an insurgent mindset, breaking institutions down, not building though. Irresponsibility was coded into its leadership. Rather than finding new policies to rebuild declining communities, Republicans mobilized anger and despair while offering up scapegoats. The party thought it could control these dark energies on its quest for more power, but instead they would consume it. Then he gets into Area 2. Now, this is, this is smart America. Smart America. Now, these smart Americans would be most in line, say, with the Quakers. The Quakers. Uh, the reciprocal libertarians. Now, the Quakers, I would say that, that I mean, it doesn't fit perfectly because these smart Americans aren't Quakers in every way. But they're Quakers in that they expect certain amounts of liberty and they give it back. Now, they don't have the same kind of tight communities. Uh, at all. In fact, all of these early groups had tight communities. The Quakers, the Puritans, the Cavaliers, the Celts. They all had, they all had strong communities. And that's real America. You see, the, the, this smart America is transient. 
and I'm just going to summarize this, but they're the, they're the people that have degrees. Uh, they're the people that don't, they're not really from anywhere. They just live places. And of course, they love the gig economy. They love uh, the things that technology can get. They love modern comforts. And they're really not that nationalistic. They have a national narrative, and that national narrative is uh, kind of, again, kind of reciprocal liberty. And they like these leftist trends, and it makes them feel good about themselves. But, and they, they keep to themselves, too. This is where I would say they are like the Quakers. They do keep to themselves, not, and they want you to marry with their own class. They don't want you to marry some slub from real America or some jerk from free America or some, some uh, jerk from just America. They want you to marry within smart America. Now, he brings up a book entitled uh, The Rise of Meritocracy by uh, Michael Young. And this was a, a um, funny book. He says, modern societies will learn how to measure intelligence in children so exactly that they could, would be stratified, I'm sorry, in schools and jobs according to their natural abilities. So this is, I mean, we started seeing some of this stuff. Look, in Europe to this day, even in China, they still have, you still take a test that determines the college you're going to go to. So meritocracy is all over the place. And smart Americans believe in it, but they also believe that people need a hand up, right? So they're going to, in their own way, this is for their own guilt. They're going to say, well, we, we should give money to these things. We should support these leftist causes. That's what we need to do. He says, what is the alternative to smart America? Either collectivization or aristocracy. Either everyone gets the same grades and salaries regardless of achievement, which is unjust and horribly mediocre, or else everyone has to live out the life to which they're born, which is unjust and horribly regressive. Meritocracy seems like the one system that answers what Tocqueville called the American passion for equality. If the opportunities are truly equal, the results will be fair if the people are also truly equal. I mean, if I would say, all right, if the um, opportunities are true, so if I had an opportunity to go play quarterback in the NFL and I was playing against Tom Brady, well, the results wouldn't be, I mean, if you say fair is that Brady kicked my behind up and down the field, well, that, I mean, is that fair? Or we say fair e equity of outcome. So he doesn't really define that here. But it's the idea of fairness that accounts for meritocracy's cruelty. If you don't make the cut, you have no one and nothing to blame but yourself. Those who make it can feel morally pleased with themselves, their talents, discipline, good choices, and even a grim kind of satisfaction that when they come across someone who hasn't made it, not there but for the grace of God I go. Not even life is unfair, but you should have been more like me. Now, this is where he points out, he says, politically smart America came to be associated with the Democratic Party. And he said this, he said, this wasn't inevitable, but because of the way it pushed, because it became the party of educated professionals, non-white voters, and the shrinking unionized working force, Democrats moved into that area because they felt guilt about things. They didn't want to be called names. They didn't like that stuff. They didn't like doing these things. So if you look at the way that Packer even structures this paper, he doesn't want to be called a name. Even when he denounces the just warriors at one point, he doesn't want to be called a name. He shows his bona fides there. But Packer is certainly worried about being called something bad. He says, The winners in smart America were drawn from national life. They spent inordinate amounts of time working, researching their children's schools and planning their activities, shopping for the right kind of food, learning to make sushi or play the mandolin, staying in shape. None of this brings them in contact with fellow citizens outside their way of life. School, once the most universal and influential of our domestic, I'm sorry, democratic institution, now walls them off. The working class is terra incognita. So these people, this smart America, has been pushed aside. He says the, the children of smart America, I mean, they're getting, they're competitive, they're getting all this stuff, but again, they're not really learning the things they need to learn. He says, so, with, so these two classes, rising professionals and, sh and sinking workers, which a couple of generations ago were close in income and not so far apart in wars, no longer believe they belong to the same country. But they can't escape each other, and their coexistence breeds condesc condescension, resentment, and shame. As a national narrative, smart America has a, a tenuous sense of the nation. Smart America doesn't hate America, which has been so good to the Smart Americans. Smart Americans believe in institutions and they support American leadership of military 
leadership, I'm sorry, military alliances and international organizations. In other words, smart America is the most cosmopolitan, bland liberal group of all of these. And these are, you know, the people in the Democrat, these are like Joe Biden in many ways, even though you could say Joe Biden's not necessarily smart, but certainly he was, he was kind of an example of that years ago. The winners in Smart America, connected by airplane, internet, and investments to the rest of the globe, have lost the capacity and the need for a national identity, which is why they can't grasp its importance for the others. Their passionate loyalty, the one that gives them a particular identity, goes to their family. The rest is diversity and efficiency, heirloom tomatoes, and self-driving cars. They don't see the point of patriotism. Nor would they, because they have no place. Then he defines patriotism. He says, but smart Americans are uneasy with patriotism. It's an unpleasant relic of a more primitive time, like cigarette smoking or dog racing. It stirs emotions that can be ugly, that have co- ugly consequences. The winners in smart America, connected by airplane, internet, and investments to the rest of the globe, have lost the capacity and the need for a national identity, which is why they can't grasp its importance for, other, for others. Their passionate loyalty, the one that gives them a particular identity, goes to their family. The rest is diversity and efficiency. Heirloom Tomatoes has said this. Okay, now, patriotism is turned to good or ill purposes, but in most people, never dies. It's a persistent attachment, like loyalty to your family, a source of meaning and togetherness, strongest when it's hardly conscious. National loyalty is an attachment to what makes your country yours, distinct from the rest, even when you can't stand it, even when it breaks your heart. This feeling can't be washed out of existence, and because people still live in their lives in an actual place, the nation is the largest place of which you can't, they can identify. World citizenship is too abstract to be meaningful. Patriotic feeling has to be tapped if you want to achieve anything big. If your goal is to slow climate change or reverse inequality or stop racism or rebuild democracy, you will need the national solidarity that comes from patriotism. So he's saying, look, we need nationalism to do all these things, and these people don't have it, and my gosh, they need to get it. So then he gets into real American. He talks about Sarah Palin, and this is the people that, you know, are upset because Trump, uh, Obama said you're going to take your God and guns. Uh, these are the people that supported Donald Trump. And they supported Sarah Palin back in 2008. They are kind of this, I mentioned before, um, these are the people that are more traditionally Southern than anything else, more Jeffersonian than anything else. Even though they're very religious and this is real America. This is what they think about. And, of course, they're, they find some common cause with some people on the left about some things like opposition to banks and opposition to, to, uh, to uh, international policies that are going to hurt them for trade and other things. So he says that these peoples, real America and uh, also free America, get together. They work well together. And that's because, again, he's pointing out the cultural similarities between the two. So then he says, progressives, shocked by the readiness of half the country to support this hateful man, seize on racism as the single cause and set out to disprove every alternative. Uh, hateful man seized on racism. I mean, this again, this is a bad narrative. He, he, it's just stupid. But this answer was too far satisfying. Racism is such an irreductible evil that it gave progressives commanding moral heights and relieved them of the burden to understand the grievances of the compatriots down in the lowlands let alone do something about them. If Trump went beyond, voters went beyond the pale, but racism alone couldn't explain why white men were much more likely to vote for Trump than white women, or why the same was true for of black and Latino men or women, or why the most reliable predictor for who was a Trump voter wasn't race, but a combination of race and education. Among white people, 38% of college graduates voted for Trump, compared with 64% without college degrees. This margin, the greatest gap between smart America and real America, was the decisive one. It made 2016 different from previous elections, and the trend only intensified in 2020. Now, I want to get down to the last bit. Again, we're, this thing is running long. We're already at uh, you know, nearly 50 minutes. So I want to get to the last bit. He said, 2014 changed everything. We used to tell our kids, I'm going to paraphrase something, we used to tell our kids all that, you know, uh, all men are created equal. Work hard. You can be anything. Knowledge is power. Democracy and capitalism are the best systems. And he said our kids started rejecting this stuff. And just America didn't buy it. He says in their eyes, pro- progress looked like a thin upper layer of black celebrities and professionals who carried the weight of society's expectations along with its prejudices and below them lousy schools, overflowing prisons, dying neighborhoods. The parents didn't really buy it either, but we had learned to ignore injustice on this scale as adults ignore so much just to get through. If anyone can smell out the bad faith of parents, it was their children, stressed out laborers and the multi-generational family because of success, bearing the psychological burdens of the meritocracy. 
They entered the workforce. They had too much debt. They couldn't get. They couldn't get up. And then you show videos of black people being killed by police. And so, Just America began another rebellion. And they see the straight line that runs from slavery and segregation to the second-class life so many black Americans live today. A betrayal of equality that has always been the country's great moral shame. For just Americans, the country is less a project of self-government to be improved than a site of continuous wrong to be battled. In some versions of the narrative, the country has no positive value at all. It can never be made better. And if that's the case, I mean, if he says there's no reconciliation, there isn't really any reconciliation with that. In the same way that libertarian ideas have been lying around for America to pick up in the stagflated 1970s, young people coming of age in the disillusioned 2000s were handed powerful ideas about social justice to explain their world. This came from the Frankfurt School, black studies, radical feminism. Critical theory upends the universal values of the Enlightenment, objectivity, rationality, science, equality, freedom of the individual. These liberal values were, are an ideology, but by one which dominant one by which one dominant group subjugates the other or another group he says this goes down to identity politics again he's getting into some of these things that i'll talk about at another point but he says the historical demand of the oppressed is inclusion as equal citizens in all the institutions of american life with identity politics that a man became different not just to enlarge the institutions but to change them profoundly when Martin Luther King at the March on Washington called on America to rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, he was demanding equal rights within the framework of the Enlightenment. In later years, his view of the American creed grew more complicated. But in identity politics, equality refers to groups, not individuals, and demands action to redress disparate outcomes among groups. In other words, equity, which often amounts to new forms of discrimination. In practice, identity politics inverts the old hierarchy of power into a new one, bottom rail on top. The fixed lens of power makes true equality, based on common humanity, impossible. Well, I would agree with this. This is actually a fair statement. This is what is happening. I said it. You know, when you have this version, is going to be this version. Oppressed now becomes the only way to look at things, and so the oppressors have to be sent down to the bottom. But that's not, is that, is that justice, really? And what is oppression? Not just unjust laws, the most important ones were overturned by the civil rights movement and successors, but, or even unjust living conditions. The focus on subjectivity moves oppression from the world to the self and its plain psychological trauma, harm from speech and text, the sense of alienation that members of minority groups feel in their constant exposure to a dominant culture. A whole system of oppression can exist within a single word. So this is where you get this idea that uh, offending, be harmed, by nothing. Just America emerged as a national narrative in 2014. That summer in Ferguson, Missouri, the police killed police killed a black 18-year-old whose body was left to lie in the street for hours came in the context of numerous incidents, more and more of them caught on video of black people assaulted and killed by white police officers who faced no obvious threat. And those videos, widely distributed on social media and viewed millions of times, symbolize the wider injustices that still confront black Americans in prisons and neighborhoods and schools and workplaces in the sixth year of the first black presidency. So he says, what is the narrative of just America? It sees American society not as a mixed and fluid, but as a fluid, fixed hierarchy, like a caste system. And he says the most uh, conspicuous part of this is the 1619 Project. But you go back to King, and this is what I said before. The 1776 Project is basing their, their history on that quote from King. They use it, in fact. And you see, they're following, more, they would be more like George Packer than anything else. This is it. We can see there's problems, but we got to stay with this. But just America doesn't want that. 1619 Project doesn't want that, but they still believe in the exact same thing. They still go back to that line and say that America betrayed it. And the only Americans that followed through were black Americans. So, again, what's historically the bottom rail is put on top. Here is the revolutionary power of the narrative. What had been considered, broadly speaking, American history is explicitly defined as white and therefore supremacist. What was innocent by default suddenly finds itself on trial. Every idea is cross-examined, and nothing else can be, get done until the case is heard. Just America isn't concerned only with race. The most radical version of the narrative lashes together uh, the oppression of all groups. 
The End of Tanishi Coast Between the World and Me, published in 2015 and hugely influential in establishing the narrative of just America, interprets global warming as the planet's cosmic revenge on white people for their greed and cruelty. There are too many things that just America can't talk about for the narrative to get the, at the hardest problems. It can't talk about the complex causes of poverty, structural racism, ongoing disadvantages that black people suffer as a result of policies and institutions over the centuries. is real. But so is individual agency, and in the just America narrative, it doesn't exist. The narrative can't talk about the main source of violence in black neighborhoods, which is young black men, not police. The push to defund the police during the protests over George Floyd's murder was resisted by many local black citizens who wanted better, not less policing. Just America can't deal with the stubborn divide between black and white students in academic assessments. The mild phrase achievement gap has been banished, not only because it implies that black parents and children have some responsibility, but also because, according to anti-racist ideology, any disparity is by definition racist. Get rid of assessments and you'll end the racism along with the gap. I'm exaggerating the suddenness of this new narrative, but not by much. Things changed astonishingly quickly after 2014 when Just America escaped campuses and pervaded the wider culture. First, the softer professions gave way. Book publishers released a whole bunch of books on these things, on newspapers and magazines. You had terms that were now put out there, systemic racism, white supremacy, white privilege, etc., etc. Similar changes came to arts organizations, philanthropies, scientific institutions, technology monopolies, and finally corporate America and the Democratic Party. Just America has dramatically changed the way Americans think, talk, and act but not the conditions in which they live. It reflects the fracturing distrust that defines our culture. Something is deeply wrong. Our society is unjust. Our institutions are corrupt. So he gets into what's happening here. He says, The dead end of just America is a tragedy. The country has had great movements for justice in the past and badly needs one now, but in order to work, it has to throw its arms out wide. It has to tell a story which most of us can see ourselves and start on a path that most of us want to follow. But he says, all the four narratives I've described emerge from America's failure to sustain and enlarge the middle-class democracy of the post-war years. Now he goes, right, so post-war, World War II, this is the one time when we had a national identity. It's it. This is where he's so mistaken about what's happening here. All this stuff was there before. There was identity politics before World War II. World War II suppressed these things, and then they came roaring back after the war is over because we've never had an American nation. All four narratives are also driven by a a competition for status that generates fierce anxiety and resentment. He says, I don't want to live in the republic of any of them. Well, maybe you need to live in a federal republic, not a singular republic. You see, because all four groups, he says, are fighting for the spoils. So this is nationalism as the problem. I, I Look, the just Americans are the Puritans. They're the political Puritans I've talked about over and over again. This is what they are. The just Americans are political Puritans, and they have nothing. They have contempt for anything but those who assimilate, who adhere to the dogma. Now, Packer says, I don't think we're dying. We have no choice but to live together. Why? We're quarantined as fellow citizens. But why? Why can't we have decentralization? Why can't we have a situation where we have real discussions about decentralization and federalism? Why can't we have that? Knowing who, are, knowing who we are lets us see what kind of change are possible. Countries are not social science experiments. They have organic qualities, some positive, some destructive, that can't be wished away. Our passion for equality, the individualism it produces, the hustle for money, the love of novelty, the attachment to democracy, the distrust of authority and intellect, these won't disappear. A way forward that tries to evade or crush them on the road to some free, smart, real, or just utopia will never arrive and instead will run into a strong reaction. But a way forward that tries to make us equal Americans, all with the same rights and opportunities, the only basis for shared citizenship and self-government is a road that connects our past and our future. Equal Americans. Uh, Again, nationalism, but it's not that. Meanwhile, we remain trapped in two countries. Each one is split by two narratives, smart and just on one side, free and real on the other. Neither separation nor conquest is a tenable future. Why not? Why can't we start talking about real separation, but not maybe not political secession, but real decentralization that allows California to be California, Alabama to be Alabama. I mentioned this before. This is why I say nationalism is a disease, and as we get through all these other pieces this week, we're going to see that. We talk about democracy in peril and the problem with Joe Biden. And then, of course, I have a fun piece on Donald Trump this week, too. But these are the things that are problematic. 
Nationalism is the disease, and it needs to be confronted directly because what Packer is saying here doesn't have to be this. History aside, he, he gets a lot of things wrong in this, but he also gets some things right. History aside, he says all this comes from our Puritan heritage. Two sides of the same coin. We need to get away from the Puritan. We're not, we don't have Puritan heritage. We don't have that. This is where he doesn't understand it. 1776, 1619, two sides of the same coin. We have the other coin. The other coin is out there. The real America. The Federal Republic. It's there. We just have to take it. It's the golden ring as we're riding on the carousel of stupidity. Grab the golden ring and get off. We could just do that. Some things could change. I'll bridge into that this week. I know this episode was very long. Again, this is why the rest of the week is so short. All right. I'll see you for the rest of the week on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.